Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Take your Bibles, if you will, please, and let's turn to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. We've been in the book of Philippians for several weeks now. Well, that's not water to drink. But... uh, But we're out of the second verse, moving on to the third verse. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. When we began the series in Philippians, we uh, expressed to you the difference between happiness and joy. And we stated, if you'll remember, that happiness is basically circumstantial, where joy is relational. Happiness is based on circumstances and situations. Joy is based on relationships. But we didn't define what biblical joy really is. And so I want to do that this morning as we begin. Mel Walker from Christianity Today has given uh, a great definition of what biblical joy is all about. He states, quote, Biblical joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction. Because we know that God will use these experiences to accomplish his work in and through our lives. That that captures uh, the core, the heart of what biblical joy is really all about. Look at it again. It's in your sermon notes this morning. Biblical joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction because we know that God will use these experiences to accomplish his work in and through our lives. Now, if that sounds uh, close to what uh, biblical peace is, you would be correct in making that comparison. Biblical peace is that deep-seated satisfaction and contentment in a person's life. Sounds a lot like joy. Well, in reality, if you have God's peace, you will also have God's joy. And if you have God's joy, you will also experience God's peace. In his letter to the Philippian church, we stated that this was Paul's ode to joy. The Apostle Paul's ode to joy. Now, I borrowed that title from Friedrich Schiller, who was a German philosopher back in 1785, and he wrote a poem and entitled it, Ode to Joy. And that poem celebrated peace 
and the triumph of universal brotherhood against war and desperation. A poem that was written 300 years ago that celebrated peace and the triumph of universal brotherhood against war and desperation. About a hundred years later, well, really about 60 years later, Ludwig von Beethoven took this poem and committed it to music in the fourth movement of his ninth symphony. And it is entitled, The Ode to Joy. Schiller fell in love with the idea of a higher morality in human existence, a higher morality. He also extolled the virtue of duty, people taking on the responsibility to serve and to be served and to involve themselves in the betterment of mankind. He also was enamored with the idea of humans as being free and rational people. He considered, seriously considered, human beings as being free and rational people. Now there's nothing wrong with having high ideals like Friedrich Schiller, but the reality is and I believe all of us know this and understand this, those high ideals are met with human flaws. They're met with human flaws. The virtues of morality and duty are limited by our own personal desires. Freedom is all too often taken for granted and abused. And we see this all around us in our country. We extol the virtues of freedom. We talk about being a free people. And we want all the nations of the earth to experience freedom like we experience freedom. But all of us know in this country that freedom is taken for granted. And all too often... Freedoms are abused. Our ability to determine or to agree on what is sensible, what is right, what is honorable, what is good, is also restricted by our limited knowledge and by, all, by our own personal will. And so while we may have high ideals of what we could be, what we ought to be, the reality is what we are. It's wonderful to think about wonderful things. But it's also necessary to remember the reality of who we are and the world that we live in. Schiller's poem is inspiring. And the Ninth Symphony 
is a masterpiece. But the joy that they foster is only temporary, and it's fleeting. I listened once again to the Ninth Symphony this last week, and I tell you, there are movements within that symphony that make you feel like you're on the mountaintop. It makes you feel like you're in a, an entirely different world. And the music as it was being played, as I closed my eyes and I, I listened as the music was being played, it was wonderful, it was glorious, it was magnificent. And then it was over. And while I basked in the glow of the genius and the magnificence of that symphony, I soon began to realize, you know, it's like God said, that's wonderful. Now it's come back to reality. We always, and you know this, we enjoy, always enjoy the mountaintop experiences, do we not? Yes. But there are times when we have to leave the mountaintop and come down and walk through the valleys again. Such joy is temporary and fleeting. On the other hand, the joy that the Apostle Paul talks about in this letter to the Philippians is a permanent, a constant joy in the life of a believer. It's permanent. And its permanence rests upon a single foundation. And that foundation is this, that joy, true spiritual joy, is a gift from God. True spiritual joy, is you cannot manufacture it. You cannot buy it. You cannot inherit it. It is a gift from God. And it's the result of our relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Happiness is circumstantial, situational. True joy is a gift that comes from God by virtue of our fellowship with God. Circumstances and situations, even Satan himself, cannot touch that unless we allow it. And that's a very important fact to remember. Nothing can touch your spiritual joy in the Lord unless you allow it. We're going to be talking a little bit more about this this morning. In Philippians chapter 1, I want us to look at verses 1 through 8. If you will, please stand with me in honor of God's Word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. We ask his blessing upon the reading of the word. You may be seated. Sin is an active principle in every human being. Sin is an active principle in every human being. It's what makes us fallen creatures. It's what's really wrong with all of us. It's the cause of all of our troubles. If we would just simply recognize that, how much further down the road we would be to having joy in our lives if we would simply acknowledge the fact that sin is the cause of all of our problems. In Psalm chapter 51, the penitent psalm of David, verses 2 through 5, King David, after being confronted in his sin by Nathan the prophet, made his way to the temple of God and fell on his face before the Lord God and cried out this penitent psalm. Wash me, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And then he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That is, the natural bent toward evil. I was brought forth in iniquity, and my sin, the principle of sin in me, and in sin my mother conceived me. David understood the depth of of his spiritual depravity. And while it may not necessarily be a wonderful thing to entertain, to think about, to confess, to acknowledge, because we are sinners, we are depraved. Our nature is a depraved nature. It is a sin nature inherited from Adam. David understood this, and he acknowledged before God that his nature was depraved. He had a spirit that was depraved. He accepted the fact that he was totally corrupted. The apple of God's eye, yes, that was the testimony of God regarding David, 
Because his desire was to serve God, his desire was to obey God, but David realized that in his nature he was corrupt. Sin had corrupted him. And this was borne out by his sinful conduct, by his behavior, gave credence to the fact that he was a sinful person, that his nature was corrupt. He also realized his sinfulness was rooted, his sinful conduct was rooted in that sin principle that was alive in him that he inherited at the point of conception in his mother's womb. I dare say, my friends, if in our own lives we cannot echo this same reality and embrace this same confession as David did before the Lord God, then we will have a continual problem, a continual problem with sin. We will gain no victory. We will know no peace. We will not advance in spiritual maturity until we come face to face with the reality of how sin has impacted each and every one of us. Sinful conduct. Sinful conduct is the result of the sin principle in us. I want you to understand that. The Bible talks about this from Genesis all the way to the book of the Revelation that sinful conduct is always the overflow of the sin principle in each and every one of us. If we did not have a sin principle in us, we would not experience sinful behavior. But sinful behavior is the fruit of the sin principle in each of us. And every one of us has it. All have sinned. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Later on in that chapter, he writes, there is none righteous, no, not one. Righteous means to do what is right. And, David, and, and the Apostle Paul says, there are none of us that do consistently, there are none of us who do what is right before God. No, not one. There is none who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. The same chapter 3 in the book of Romans, verses 10 through 12. Now there is an observation that we need to make about this. And the observation is this. Although the sin principle is active in each and every one of us, although the sin principle is active in each and every one of us, and we've inherited that from Adam, who disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden. And God said, you know, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And they ate of the fruit of that tree. But they were still physically alive. So did God lie? Did God deceive Adam and Eve? by telling them that they would surely die in the day that they ate of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil no 
the death that he was talking about was spiritual death. They remained alive physically, but they experienced at that moment through their rebellion and disobedience toward God, they experienced spiritual death. And here's the thing that we need to grasp in order to understand this. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created man, the Bible says that God created man in his own image. And the word image does not refer to the way God looks. It has nothing to do with physiology because God is a spirit. He has no physiological properties to him. So the image of God that he created us in is the spiritual image of God. Mind, spirit, emotion, will, all of those things that cannot be touched with human hands. God created us to reflect those things. But in Genesis chapter 5, Moses goes on to tell us that Adam lived for so many years and he had children and those children were born in Adam's image not in God's image God created us in his image Adam gave birth to children in Adam's image fallen nature sinful condition passed on from Adam to every human individual that's ever been born save one. So even though the sin principle is active in all of us, sinful conduct, sinful conduct is more notorious and infamous in some than in others. That's just a general observation. Even though all of us have the sin principle operating within each and every one of us, the conduct, the fruit, the overflow of that sin principle in life is more notorious and more infamous in some people than it is in others. Let me illustrate that for you. Everyone familiar with the person named Abram Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln, you all know who he is, you've read about him, you've heard about him. Abraham Lincoln, he was our 16th president. He is reputed to be a kind and a thoughtful gentleman. And he was a friend to thousands of individuals. He was wise. He was compassionate. And he was a man of high moral character. And some say one of the greatest, if not the greatest, presidents of these United States. Adolf Hitler. You've read about him. You've heard about him. Adolf Hitler was a monster. He was a master of seduction and destruction. He was an egomaniac and a cold-blooded murderer of millions of people. 
And yet both Abraham Lincoln and Adolf Hitler were sinners. Influenced by the same sin principle inherited by all who are descendants of Adam. But one was more notorious and more infamous in his conduct as a sinner than the other. Now I say that to say this. Just as everyone is infected with the sin nature, which is revealed in varying degrees by our conduct, so the degree or the level of joy, the degree or the level of joy we have in Jesus Christ is determined by the things that we appreciate, the things that we affirm, and the things that we appropriate into our lives. There are levels of joy that can be experienced in a person's life. All Christians have joy. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have joy in Christ Jesus. But some Christians are more joyful than others. Some Christians, I'm not talking about happy. I know some Christians are happier than other Christians. No, we're talking about joy here. And there are some Christians who are more joyful than others. In Paul's greeting to the Philippians, he lists a number of factors that increase or enhance our joy in Christ Jesus. And some of these we've already discussed in weeks gone by. I want you to look at verse 2. In verse 2, he mentions God's grace. Philippians 1 verse 2, he mentions God's grace. Where would we be without God's grace? Have you ever thought of that? We take God's grace for granted, but thinking about it, where would we be without God's grace? We would be lost in sin and we would be destined for hell. There's no joy in that. But because of God's grace, we can rejoice that he no longer considers us to be sinners and he has changed our eternal destiny. Then he also mentions in verse 2 there's God's peace. What joy there is in knowing that the sin issue in our life has been settled and we have peace with God. Amen? Romans 5.1 Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. God declares us no longer guilty of sin, so the sin issue has been settled, and now we can enjoy a deep-seated rest and contentment in our spirit as we fellowship with God. Then there's joy in knowing Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 2, perhaps you have a personal relationship with Jesus so you know the joy of salvation. Amen? You know the joy of eternal life. You know the joy of fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he mentions fellowship with God. 
We have fellowship with God who created us and who sustains us. But not only who has created us and sustains us, he's created the entire universe. And he sustains the entire universe by the power of his might. But the greater joy is knowing this one true and living God as our Father. Our Father. The one who loves us with an infinite love who has sent his son Jesus Christ to deal with the sin issue that keeps us separated from him. These are four things that the Apostle Paul has mentioned in verse 2 that excite our joy, that enlarge our joy. But then let's go back to verse 1 where the Apostle Paul mentions joy in serving the Lord. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. There is joy in being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That joy is increased when we have partners that minister with us, pastors and deacons, as well as all of the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ who come alongside us and minister with us the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these are other elements that add to our joy as Christians. Now, in verse 3, and going on through verse 8, the Apostle Paul mentions six more elements that enlarge or enhance our joy in Christ Jesus. The first of which is gratitude. Notice this in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Gratitude. Thankfulness. The word thankfulness or the word thank is eucharisteo. Eucharisteo. And it's the Greek word that we have in our English, we, from our English word Eucharist. Eucharist. Eucharist is the same thing as communion or the Lord's Supper. So when we observe communion, which we will next Sunday, when we observe communion, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that secured our salvation. But we're also saying thank you. We're saying thank you to the Father who provided that sacrifice and Jesus Christ who became that sacrifice on our behalf. Eucharisteo. Thank you. Thanksgiving. Gratitude, thankfulness. We come to the table to say thank you, God, for the sacrifice that you have provided to save us from sin. So, uh, the question has to be asked, what does gratitude, what does thankfulness have to do with our joy in Christ Jesus? What does gratitude have to do with our joy in Christ Jesus. Joshua Kang wrote these words, quote, The highest peak of the spirituality that is rooted in Christ is gratitude. The highest 
peak, the Mount Everest of the spirituality that is rooted in Christ is gratitude, end quote. On the other hand, Michael Houdman wrote this, quote, when we refuse to be thankful or to express gratitude, we grow hard-hearted and proud. We take for granted all that God has given us and we become our own gods, end quote. A number of evangelical theologians have stated that the greatest sin in a Christian's life is ingratitude. The greatest sin in a Christian's life is ingratitude. Why? Because it's rooted in pride and arrogance. I don't need to be thankful. I don't need to thank you for what you've done for me. I don't need to be thankful for the things that you've invested in my life. I don't need to be thankful to you for how you have blessed me. I don't need to thank God for this and for that and the other. That's pride. That's arrogance. And so, to not be thankful is to exercise one's arrogance and one's pride. It's to thumb your nose at God and other people. It's the greatest sin that a Christian commits in his or her life. Now, there are many reasons for which we ought to be thankful. And this morning, we're not going to talk about all of them. We're only going to talk about three of them. But there are many, many reasons why we ought to be thankful, why we should be thankful to not only the Lord God, but also to each other for our lives and in our lives. The first one is this. It is God's will that we be thankful. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, Rejoice always. So here we're talking about joy. Now I know this is in Thessalonians, but joy is joy, whether it's in Thessalonians or whether it's in uh, Philippians or in Romans or Corinthians. Rejoice always. We're talking about joy. Pray without ceasing in everything what? Give thanks. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. It is God's will that you be thankful. It is God's will that I be thankful. It adds to our joy in Christ Jesus when we are thankful. The book of Hebrews chapter 11. That is the faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, which stresses that obedience to the will of God is the definitive expression of faith. When you go and you read through Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is this, 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 in chapter 11 verse 1. Faith is this, faith is this, faith is this. And then for the rest of the chapter, the apostle describes faith in concrete terms, in realistic terms. And the one overarching expression of human faith is obeying the will of God. 
By faith, Abraham what? Abraham left his family, left his country, and he went to a place that God showed him. Why? Because God told him to. So faith in the life of Abraham was obedience to the will of God to leave Ur of Chaldee and go to a land that God would promise him and his descendants. By faith, Abraham took his promised son Isaac and what did he do? He took him to a designated place and he bound him up and he put him on an altar that he had built and prepared for sacrifice. Why did he do that? Because God told him to do that. And you go all the way through the book of Hebrews, you go all the way through the chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, and again, he is describing faith in terms that you and I can understand. And the main principle of faith is one's obedience to God. Our obedience pleases God. We cannot please God without faith. And if faith is, in practical terms, obeying what God has said, then obedience pleases God, which in turn increases our joy. Since we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, Romans 8.28, then it is our joy in choosing to respond to all things with inner contentment and satisfaction knowing that God will use those things to accomplish his work within us and through us. Now, I don't know about you, but in looking back over my life and over my ministry, I find that my most miserable periods the most miserable days of my life and in my ministry was when I was out of the will of God. When I was disobedient to His will. In those days, I experienced frustration. I experienced guilt, regret. I was angry at myself. And besides that, I made everyone else around me miserable. When a Christian is out of the will of God, the joy that they should be experiencing is lessened. A wet blanket has been placed over that joy. But the best days the greatest days of my life and ministry, those periods when the joy of the Lord was overflowing within me were the days when I was where God wanted me to be and I was doing what God wanted me to do. 
I'm not saying that those are days when everything was as smooth as silk. I'm not saying those were days when everything was going my way. I'm not saying that those were days that were free from tension, free from conflict, free from a lot of the the pressures of the world. But what I am saying is in those days when I was where God wanted me to be, doing what God wanted me to be, do, whatever was going on in my world, there was joy in my spirit. There was joy in my spirit. God chastises his disobedient children, but he rewards his obedient children with increased joy. I think of the Apostle Peter. And we're all familiar with the Apostle Peter. Peter was a rough old fisherman. Well, he wasn't really all that old. He was a rough fisherman. He was a man of the world. Uh, He was a businessman. And he was the kind of guy that didn't tolerate goofing off, laying around, excusing, so on and so forth. He was a no-nonsense, business-minded man. Jesus called him to discipleship. Four different times Jesus called him to discipleship before Peter surrendered. And when Peter surrendered, there was a joy that started to well up in him. He wanted to be where Jesus was. He wanted to participate in everything that Jesus was doing. Oftentimes he spoke on behalf of the disciples. Many times he was with Jesus alone or with James and John. They enjoyed a fellowship with Jesus that some of the other disciples did not enjoy. And I happen to believe in my own mind and my own heart that Peter became a joyful individual. Still the rough old cob that he was, Still the no-nonsense kind of guy that he was. Sometimes he spoke out of turn. Sometimes he said things he shouldn't have said. Sometimes he challenged Jesus. And Jesus had to put him in his place. But there was, there was still a joy in Peter's heart that he didn't have before. And then his Lord was arrested. And then his Lord was taken to the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter followed along, not because he was curious, wanted to know what was going to happen, no. He wanted to be with his Lord. He wanted to be where Jesus was. It was dangerous for him, but he didn't know how dangerous. And he was confronted three times about knowing Jesus, about being in fellowship with Jesus. And three times Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And the scripture says, when the cock crew, when the rooster crowed, as the dawn began to break, Peter left that courtyard weeping bitterly. That joy, that joy had subsided in him. That joy had been affected by his disobedience by his denying Christ it is God's will 
that we be thankful. And in being thankful, in obeying our Lord, out of gratitude for all that He has done for us, the joy that He has put within our heart, our spirit is enhanced. Second, God is holy and God is just. And out of His great love for us, He chooses to judge us not according to His justice, but according to His mercy. Joy in a Christian's life is enlarged and enhanced when we remember God's mercy toward us. God's mercy toward us. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13. Take a look at that passage with me in your Bibles. Turn left and go all the way back to the Old Testament to Psalm 103. The 103rd Psalm. And I want you to turn to this rather than just read it to you because you need to see the words on the page. You need to mark this text. You need to know this text in your life as a Christian. Yes, it's Old Testament, but it's the truth of God. Doesn't matter which book it's in in the Bible, it's still God's truth. 103rd Psalm, beginning in verse 8. Notice, the Lord is merciful and gracious. The Lord is merciful and gracious. God extends to us His grace. God extends to us His mercy. How so? He explains. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us. The word strive means to contend with. He doesn't always fight us. Nor will he keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you grateful that God does not deal with us according to the sins of our lives? I tell you, my friends, if God did deal with each and every one of us according to the sins of our lives, we wouldn't exist anymore. We wouldn't exist anymore. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. Let me ask you the question, how high are the heavens above the earth? You're an educated man, Doc. How high are the heavens above the earth? I was reading, and he's right. I was reading, you know, I'm fascinated with astronomy, not astrology, astronomy. I'm fascinated with the Hubble telescope's pictures of constellations and uh, nebula and all of these other kinds of things that are in the far reaches of space. And I was reading that one scientist has estimated that the farthest reaches of the universe, the outer limits of the universe, are thousands and thousands and thousands of light years away from Earth. Now, 
I know some of you drive fast. You do? Light travels at around 186,000 miles a second. That's a little bit faster than some of you drive. 186,000 miles a second. How many seconds are there in a year? A lot, a bunch. But what scientists are telling us, what astronomers are telling us is that the furthest reaches of the universe are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of light years away. If you got in a spaceship and, you've, and you flew 186,000 miles, your speed was 186,000 miles a second, it would take you thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years to reach the outer limits of the universe. How high are the heavens above the earth? That's how, high, that's how far God has removed our sins from us. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> that's how far he has removed our sins from us. He goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, there are a number of different words in here that describe sin. The word sin here, or the conduct that comes from the sin principle. Transgression is a Hebrew word that uh, it's a sin where you stand opposed to God. When you rebel against God, that is the Hebrew word translated in English as transgression. You know, sometimes you sin because you slip up. Sometimes you sin because you didn't know any better. Sometimes you sin because this, that, or the other. But transgression is where you stand opposed to God. And David said, or yes, David tells us that as, as uh, high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, those of you who are uh, familiar with the earth and so on and so forth, you need to understand that he's also talking about an infinite distance. Because you know when you take a look at the globe, you can only go so far north, right? Before you start going south, right? You go from here and you travel a couple of thousand miles and you're at the North Pole. If you keep going further, you start going south, until you reach the South Pole, and then you start going north again. But that's not what David says here. He doesn't say as far as the north is from the south, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. No, he says as far as the east is from the west. How far do you need to travel going east until you start going west? You can never go so far east that you start going west. You go east infinitely. And I, I'm grateful that David gave us this insight on the grace and the mercy and the love of God in removing our sins from us. He has removed our sins from us infinitely. That's the mercy. That is the mercy of God. He does not treat us with his justice. He treats us with his mercy. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. Verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Understand what the word pity means. The word pity in English, for the most part, means, you know, you kind of shake your head and, oh my, 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 what a poor soul. You know, it's, you know, you pit, but that's not what the Hebrew word translated pity means. The word means compassion. It means to demonstrate love. So as the father has compassion toward his children, so the Lord has compassion toward those who fear him. Aren't you grateful for God's mercy in your life? Aren't you thankful that God does not open a can of whoop-up on you every time you step out of bounds with God? Every time you say no to God? Every time you do something that displeases God? Aren't you grateful that He doesn't wipe you off the face of the earth? He may chastise you, but the stinging of the chastisement lasts only for a short time, according to this psalm. His anger is only kindled for a short time. He doesn't strive with us forever. And that's because of his mercy. King David sang in the 118th Psalm, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. In the 13th Psalm, he says, I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God's mercy excites and enlarges and expands the joy in an individual's spirit. Psalm 31, I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hands of the enemy. You have set me my feet on a wide place. A safe place. We live, we live in a time when people demand justice. I hear this all the time. We demand justice. We want justice. They demand justice when they're victims. But they cry out for mercy when they are the perpetrators. Have you ever noticed that? People crying out for justice when they're the recipients of someone's criminal activity. But when they're the perpetrator, they cry out for mercy. This is because we have lost our sense of moral excellence. We've lost our sense of goodness and of righteousness. And we've cultivated in us a sense of moral superiority and dishonesty and inequity. That's the culture that we're living in today. In Psalm 33, the psalmist writes, Blessed, and the Hebrew word here means to be happy or to be joyful. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Would you say that we are a a blessed nation? That this is a nation that is happy and joyful? If you think it is, get your head out of the sand. Wake up and smell the coffee. We have become an anxious nation. We have become an angry nation. We've become a nation filled with violence and hypocrisy 
and disunity. We are no longer virtuous, but we've become vile and corrupt. And it is because the true and living God is not Lord in this land. Now I, I remember not too long ago, and you do too, when a certain so-and-so said that this is no longer a Christian nation, and oh, the uproar that came out of the Christian churches. How dare you say that we are not a Christian land? Beloved, you go to Romans chapter 1 and start at verse 18 and read through the rest of that chapter and you will realize that everything the Apostle Paul outlines as being characteristic of a godless nation are the very same characteristics of this nation. I'm not saying that Jesus is not Lord. What I'm saying is that this nation has forsaken Jesus as the Lord of this land. Happy, joyful is the nation whose God is the Lord. We're everything but that. And it's because we have forsaken the Lord as a nation. I haven't as a person. We haven't as a church. But as a nation, hmm. Finally, the Apostle James wrote in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, my brethren, and we need to hear this because this is where a lot of us are. He says, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials, difficulties, adversities. For the Christian, these things are not punishments. And they are not God's curse upon us. Too many of us, listen, too many of us believe that if we're going through a difficult time, it's because God has something against us. God has got... God has got God is angry at me because things are not going the way I had planned. God has got his thumb on me, keeping me down, pushing me down. God has got a beef against me because I'm going through this trial. I've, maybe I've lost my job. Maybe uh, the doctor has told me that I have COVID or maybe uh, the doctor has said that I have cancer or some other thing. Or maybe uh, my finances have been reversed. And so I, I look at those things and I say, well, you know, God is mad at me for something. Maybe there's some sin in my life that I haven't confessed. Maybe I've ticked God off in some way that I don't know about. If you're of that attitude, then join Job's friends back in the Old Testament. They were wrong as well. God allows, God permits trials to come into our lives. He permits us to experience trials in our lives, not because he's mad at us, not because he's got a beef against us, but that he can provide opportunities for us to grow up spiritually. To grow up spiritually. 
trials come into our lives so that our trust and dependence upon God can become stronger. God allows adversity to come into our lives so that we can exercise the Lordship of Jesus Christ to the next level in our lives. Psalm chapter 25, O oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Psalm 56, David writes, Whenever I am afraid, how many of you are in that spot this morning? Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can the flesh do to me? Trials. Now, I'll agree with you. Trials do not generate happiness. Trials do not generate happiness. In fact, they often generate anxiety and frustration and anger and even tears. Trials can even bring us to tears. But God permits trials to come as an occasion for the increase of our joy in the Lord. Because as James says, these lead to our spiritual maturity. Count it all joy when you face trials. Why? Because it's for the perfecting of your faith that these have come into your life. And if that is not enough to convince you, then realize the promise of God that even in the midst of our trials, we can rejoice and we, be, we can be thankful because God has promised He will never leave us and He will never forsake us. Even in the midst of our trials? Yes, even in the midst of our trials. He is with us. That's His promise to us. So now, biblical joy. Biblical joy is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction because we know that God will use these experiences to accomplish His work in us and through us. And for that, we can be thankful. Amen? Stand with me. David, come lead us in a song. Kept going through my mind and my heart as he's preaching this morning. I'm so thankful for Jesus. Amen. There's something about that name. Amen. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, there's just something about that name my master and savior jesus like the fragrance after the rain jesus jesus
Lord, as we leave the house and as we go out onto the fields that are white to harvest, may we go speaking the name of Jesus to those who need to hear. May we go living the Christ life. May we go introducing people to the one who died on a cross that we might have life in him. May we go with joy in our spirit and gratitude in our heart and upon our lips for all of the wonderful things that you permit us to enjoy in this life and that we will enjoy in the life which is to come. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving our soul. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making us whole. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving to me your great salvation so rich and so free. It's in your name we pray and all of God's people said. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.